You are listening to a random tempted comedy on WWSU 106.9 Dane's Right Choice. I'm your host, Random Allen, the man who shows you that you can have a whole show based around name puns. Just kidding, we talk about movies and classic rock too. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the next hour. This week on the show, we're talking about crazy Halloween costumes, real lightsabers, flaming houses, and my movie recommendations for the Halloween season. For our last segment, we will be joined by the local band Lucid Wasteland. We'll be interviewing the band members, and Lucid Wasteland will be playing one of their latest songs on air for us. The views and opinions expressed on Random Tempted Comedy are our own and do not reflect the views and opinions of WWSU 106.9 FM or Wright State University. Enjoy This Is Halloween by Trap Nation and we'll be back. that perhaps you've seen in your dreams for the story that you are about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old now you probably wondered where holidays come from if you haven't i'd say it's time you begun Everybody's free! 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 Free!
Hello and welcome to Random Tempted Comedy. Today we are bringing you the most off-the-wall random content Wright State has to offer. The days are getting shorter, the weather's getting cold, and we're getting ready for the Halloween season here down at the studio. It's news time, kids. Let's see what this October has to offer us in the way of crazy this week with our first segment. Weird news around the world! Welcome to our first segment where we talk about the odd, the unusual, and the downright strange things that happen on this big blue planet of ours. This week, our stories are primarily Halloween-centric. There's one story I knew I needed to talk about as soon as I saw it. Are you dressing as a Jedi in this pandemic fuel Halloween, and you're looking for that one prop? Well, why not bring an actual working lightsaber? Want to impress Star Wars nerds, be a danger of public property, set things on fire, and be a middle finger to conventional knowledge saying that lightsabers were impossible all at the same time? Well, now you can. Yes, this crazy engineer slash YouTuber, the Hacksmith, invented an actual working retractable lightsaber. Science is really scary to me at points, but also unbelievably awesome. So indulge me while I geek out about this for about five minutes and try to loosely fit it in with my Halloween theme. As we talked about on our first episode, it seems like the last five years have been the dawn of, like, everything futuristic finally coming to fruition. We have real-life hoverboards, a company trying to make commercially available flying cars, and even power armor. It's starting to become a thing. Well, okay, work in practical powered exoskeletons. There'll be power armor soon enough for all those Fallout fans out there. One thing I never thought I'd see made in my lifetime would be a working lightsaber. I remember staying up late with my dad when I was a kid watching shows about inventing sci-fi technology that were talking about everything from cloaking suits to laser guns to lightsabers. And I distinctly remember at the time some th- that such a thing wasn't feasible at all. And in 2012, the U.S. military unveiled what was essentially a high-powered short plasma torch. It was useful for multiple things, but not very long. But over the past eight years, people with way too much time on their hands have been slowly developing lightsaber tech. And the Hacksmith, DIY YouTuber engineer and part-time mad scientist, has been busy. He's built everything from a working version of the power loader mech from the movie Aliens to cyber cars and Captain America's shield. So if any amateur engineer was going to develop a working lightsaber, it would be him. The final product is a 4,000-degree plasma blade held in shape by a magnetic field, like a real lightsaber, and it can cut through almost anything. It's insane. It can cut steel plates in half, cut large holes out of solid concrete, stab through prop stormtrooper armor and explode glass. It is attached to a power backpack in order to supply it with oxygen and propane, but it's fully retractable and can cut through almost anything, including halfway through a car. Even though the lightsaber is hooked up to a power pack, for now, I never thought I'd see the day when lightsabers would actually exist in our world. The biggest takeaway from the story is that science is amazing and can always defy our expectations. I think the Hacksmith crew should give one of these prototypes to George Lucas so he can win every Halloween costume contest this year. Okay, continuing our trend of flammable Halloween prop, let's stop by Riverside, California and talk about Halloween decorations. We all know that one family in the neighborhood who goes overboard with decorations for the holidays. Even if you aren't that family, seeing these elaborate house decorations and huge setups can be really entertaining around the holidays. Sometimes the decorations can become a little bit too realistic for some neighbors. So this family in Riverside decided to set up a huge Pirates of the Caribbean display and to top off their massive decoration through an impressive, what I'm sure is an impressive combination of pyrotechnics, 
holograms, and fog machines, managed to convincingly trick everybody into thinking that their house would be engulfed in flames. The house really looks like it's burning down in a massive blaze. It's really impressive, but might be a bit too realistic for some. Several concerned neighbors, who must have thought that there was a gender reveal party that had gone wrong inside, called the fire department to share the happy, flammable news about the non-existent baby. The respondent firefighters were actually super impressed by the display, and the owner of the house said that he was glad he could bring a little bit of Halloween joy for everybody during the pandemic. Well, it was initially concerning the house has gotten many visitors and onlookers since, but the family does have to alert the fire department every time they turn their display on. I'm happy this awful pandemic has not dampened this family's spirits and decorating. Our next story, however, is what happens when guests to your house are not happy with how little you decorated. Life in suburbia can be barely tolerable at times, I know. The judgmental stares of your hairy neighbors because you only put up one pumpkin can be hard to bear it. This was the story in New Jersey where one concerned neighbor could not bear the injustice of a house just having one pumpkin any longer. This righteous vigilante could barely get his paws on the family's pumpkin before the thief was scared away by the owner. But luckily, by a hair, this concerned neighbor managed to keep the pumpkin. But only just barely. If it's not obvious by the obnoxious amount of bear pun I've shoved into the last six sentences, a bear stole this family's pumpkin from their front porch. Two weeks in a row of funny bear stories, and six weeks in a row of covering at least one funny animal story. Funny animals may deserve their own segment, ideals for the future. Luckily, like the last bear-related story, nothing bad happened other than our furry friend stealing a tasty snack. So, finally, for our final story of the segment, let's chat about weird Halloween costumes. Now, Halloween costumes have been getting progressively stranger every year. What do you get when you add a pandemic to that? Well, apparently absolute insanity. I saw a little bit of this unique creativity when me and Jerry talked about weird coronavirus masks a few weeks ago. The first one is an obvious choice. The sexy plague doctor costume. Oh, you thought it was a joke from episode 3. No, it's very real. Nothing says sexy more than a deadly plague that has killed millions of people and the rather alluring doctors and weird bird-shaped masks treat in it. Hello, Plague Doctor. You also have the classics, such as somebody dressing up as a can of White Claw, want to be a can of overpriced, overrated, shallow, and barely alcoholic tap water? Well, this is the costume for you. Oh, I kid, White Claw. That's an insult to tap water. Or why not be social media this year? I mean, everyone's on it all the time anyway. Now you can go to Halloween parties dressed up as Snapchat, Facebook, and Tinder. Do you like Bob Ross? Do you want to show that in the form of a costume? No, 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 not by dressing up as Bob Ross. That's already been done a million times. Not even by dressing up as sexy Bob Ross. That's been done too. Now you can go dress as a Bob Ross painting, happy trees and all. And now let's not forget the influx of literal costumes. Do people call you a pothead? Why not take it literally and wear an actual giant potted plant on your head? Or be a chicken stripper? Or have a blind mouse costume? But my personal favorite in this category is a girl standing on a street corner wearing a t-shirt that said life and handing out lemons, all with a pun-filled smile on her face. But I think the costume that tops of a proverbial cake, the raciest and spiciest of all the costumes, has to be the sexy salt shaker. You would think 
that this would have to be some kind of joke, and there's no way that this thing could actually exist. But no, not only does the sexy salt shaker exist, I'm sure at least one person out there is into it. I thought we went too far with the sexy John Oliver costume, but now we're here. Look at what this year trapped in isolation has done to the human race. What have we done? What have we done? Well, while I finish going through this existential crisis, we are going to cut to a short little commercial break. When we get back, we are talking about my personal favorite Halloween movies, spooky web shows, and my recommendations for the season. Enjoy Untitled by Lucid Wasteland from their latest EP, Apocalyptia. Later on the show today, we're going to have two of the members of Lucid Wasteland come on the show, do a little bit of an interview, and perform live for us. We'll be right back, folks.
Welcome back to Random Attempted Comedy, the only radio show where you come for the weird news and stay for the host's attempts to make a single name pun funny for 60 minutes. Continuing with the Halloween theme, we are sort of skipping reels and riffs for this week, and instead listen to my recommendations for some of my favorite horror films and scary web shows. First, let's talk about my top favorite horror films I want to recommend to our audience this Halloween season. Number five is a little bit obscure, but if you've seen SpongeBob in the last 20 years, you should recognize the name. The 1920s German silent film Nosferatu, The Symphony of Horror. Silent films are already a big hurdle to, like, entry for watching for most people, but I do want you to try to overlook that and check this out anyway. The film is very haunting and atmospheric even today. It was filmed in a German expressionist style, which, if you don't know, is known for its distorted architecture, long shadows, creative angles, and generally a nightmarish, disturbed mood. If you look at almost any Tim Burton film, he draws heavy inspiration from the style. In this film, the darkness, the fact that it was shot in black and white, and the silence actually adds to the atmosphere. But probably the scariest thing about it is the lead vampire, Count Orlock. While most vampires are generally sexualized and are kind of dressed like gentlemen, Count Orlock in Nosferatu has a pale white face of like a diseased plague rat. He's very tall and lanky, barely even being able to fit through doors and you can see the shadow of his uncomfortably long, bony fingers as he creeps up the stairwell. Those eyes that he has stare into your soul. I honestly think Nosferatu probably inspired some of those vampires in Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Some old films lose their frightful nature as they get older, and their data effects really bring down the film. This is not true with Nosferatu, whose age, grainy quality, and old production design actually adds to the haunted visuals. We are lucky to have this film at all, because almost all copies of it were destroyed due to a lawsuit. The film is an unsanctioned Dracula remake with the names changed, and Bram Stoker's widow sued the production company a few years after the film's release. All copies were ordered destroyed as part of the settlement, but luckily some people held on to their original prints, and they were discovered many years later. It's a great thing, too, because otherwise we would not have a chance to view this masterpiece today. Number four on my list of recommendations is Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. While many of the sequels made the alien essentially a household name for like monsters, I feel like the original is still a bit underrated. On the surface, the plot is nothing special. It's essentially a slasher slash monster on the loose movie in space. But what sells the film is the execution and Ridley Scott's amazing direction. The production design has Scott's signature style that he would later use on films like Blade Runner, with masterful uses of smoke, lighting, and set design. Most of the main characters are very likable, like, like Ripley, where you don't want to see them die, which I think is a key for any true horror movie, especially a slasher movie. I will spoil a little bit because the movie's over 40 years old, and most people know the gist. The practical effects in the film still hold up and they look great. One of, one of my particularly favorite scenes is when the crew of the Nostromo enters into the derelict alien ship. The whole place is massive, the walls are black and ornately designed, and the giant dead like space pilot in the cockpit has a hole in his chest, which is an omen of things to come if you know anything about the alien movies. The smoke and the light in sell the tension, and they hide like parts of the ship in just the right way to let your mind do the work for you. And of course I must mention the design of the alien itself, who was based on a painting by H.R. Geiger. 
The design and its life cycle certainly were revolutionary back then, and it's probably one of the most unique alien designs to come out at the time. Even if it's a little bit suggestive, especially if you know what pain in it comes from. Something crazy about the original alien suit that I learned last year is that there's an actual human skull built into the front of the face. I mean, that's one way to get remembered after death, I guess. The suit still looks good in, in like most of the shots, but mainly the suit works in short bursts after the tension has done all of its work. Some of the kills towards the middle kind of look laughably bad, but overall it's still an amazing movie and the set design and atmosphere alone make it a strong recommendation from me. Number 3 was called the scariest movie of all time when it was released, and this is one of the times where I think that the promotional material probably wasn't exaggerating. The Exorcist. The Exorcist is one of those films which depends entirely on the strong build-up of tension in the first half. Beginning with an elderly priest investigating information about a Middle Eastern demon, the film follows a little girl named Reagan as she slowly gets possessed and taken over by a demon. The film is oozing with scares, but not just jump scares, terrifying imagery. Linda Blair's Reagan delivers an amazingly disturbing performance. Scenes from The Exorcist have been parodied many times, but nothing compares to the horror of the original. Blair really sells it, and the effects of her twisting her head all the way around, or violently shaken, or levitating still hold up today. The film is full of this chill that underscores the whole movie. And sometimes literally, like, sometimes it just feels cold. And excellent lighting adds, like, to the strong performances by the whole cast. Father Mirren's silhouette wrapped in fog in front of the street lamp is probably one of the most iconic shots in, like, all of film. William Friedkin does a masterful job all around with his direction. Even if you've seen some of the parodies and you think you know what's going to happen, this film is still worth watching because it's an unforgettable experience, whose scares only truly can be done by the original. The last sentence is something that can definitely apply to the next film on our list. One of the most recognizable horror films of all time, and essentially one of the early starts for the slasher genre, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Psycho is actually my first Alfred Hitchcock movie. I went into the film basically knowing every single twist and expecting to not get anything really significant out of it. I was completely wrong. From the beginning to end, the film is oozing with suspense. Alfred Hitchcock's title as the master of suspense is not exaggerating. He can build up tension so thick you can cut a knife through it. The main character of the film goes from a normal office secretary job to being on the run for stealing thousands of dollars, and then heads on her way to a certain motel that I think we all know very well. Part of what sells this film so much is the main antagonist, Anthony Perkins, who gives a very creepy and disturbed performance of Norman Bates. One of the scariest things to me is the horror of the mind. Stephen King once had a quote, it was, monsters are real, ghosts are real too, they live inside of us, and sometimes they win. And I think that applies to this film. Anthony Perkins' disturbed manner and like dialogue always leave you really tense. This film still holds up very strongly today, because it's not the type of film to be dependent upon special effects. It's the type of film to be dependent upon the performance of the actors and the direction of the director. Both absolutely kill it here. After seeing Psycho, I was sold on being a fan of Alfred Hitchcock, and I found many masterpieces that have become some of my favorite films, like Rear Window, Vertigo, and North by Northwest. 
But other than The Birds, Psycho is one of Hitchcock's only films that I would consider an actual horror movie. I would strongly recommend it, along with all of Alfred Hitchcock's work that I've seen. But tip of advice before I move on to number one, do not watch the shot-for-shot -shot remake of Psycho with Vince Vaughn. Don't do it. Vince Vaughn's a good actor, but the whole concept behind the film is wrong. It brings nothing new to the table. Even more so than a normal remake, and it's just a forgettable rehash with a less talented cast and a less talented director. Other than a very useless and pointless scene towards the end, the original Psycho did not need to be remade. It's perfect as it is. Moving on to number one. Number one should not be a surprise for anybody who's watched the last episode or who know who my favorite director is. Number one is Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It had to be this film. Kubrick excels at whatever genre he dips his feet in, and he absolutely kills it with The Shining. The Shining is a masterclass and everything I consider to be good horror. Well, at the gate, I want to say good horror is subjective and people have their different opinions. You know, you're allowed to like have a different opinion than me. But for me, good horror is not relying on jump scares or loud noises. It's horror that sticks with you and makes you think. It's the kind of horror that doesn't give you all the pieces, but lets your mind fill in the rest. And it's all the scarier for it. The one word I would use to describe the Cheyenne is, it's haunting. The images like the Grady twins at the end of the hallway, or a demented Jack Nicholson staring through the broken door, or room 237 will stick with you long after the film is over. The wide open spaces in the hotel give a massive sense of isolation. I think the true horror of the film really comes from the fear of hurting those closest to you. As we see Jack descend into madness, you can feel Jack slowly losing all his restraints and finally flying off the handle. The film's soundtrack, too, is brilliant. It adds that otherworldly Lovecraftian tension that underscores the whole movie. All the performances feel very real, and part of that is due to Stanley Kubrick's unique direction style and professionalism. Kubrick wanted every shot to be perfect, and as most people know, that required the actors to sometimes do like hundreds of takes in order to get everything right. Because of, that we, because of this, we get a terrifyingly demented performance from Jack Nicholson. Nicholson is one of my favorite actors, and this is one of his best performances in my opinion. An another shout-out goes to Shelley Duvall, who also gives a very convincing, terrified, and realistic take for Wendy towards the end of the movie. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention the toll and stress Kubrick, Kubrick's methods have taken on some of his actors, especially Shelley Duvall. While we did get amazing performances out of everybody, I do not agree or endorse with everything that Kubrick did to get those performances. I just want to get that out of the way right now. If your taste in horror is similar to mine, you probably already love The Shining. But if you've only seen it once in like many years, even if you watch it all the time, I would definitely recommend giving it a watch over this Halloween. The Shining is my number one pick because it's the best example of horror that lingers with you. And it's one of the best horror films of all time. If you also want something like The Shining, I would recommend films like The Babadook from 2014 or Doctor Sleep, which was just released last year. I do not recommend the made-for-TV series, though. It's more accurate to the book, but it's executed terribly. Stay away from it. Now, for my last two recommendations, we go to the internet. 
which honestly over the last few years has probably been the best source of generally terrifying and inventive like short horror films. When you're not tied to a major studio that only sees dollar signs in sinister, insidious, paranormal activity, jump scare filled ripoff movies, you have the opportunity to do your own thing and the results can be quite interesting. My first one is the web series Local 58 on YouTube. The series was made by Chris Strauss, who's worked on several horror properties of his own. Also, he wrote the original Candle Cove short story, which was made into a full-length series recently. We're not talking about any of those. We're talking about what I think is his magnum opus, Local 58. Local 58 is a bunch of short films set on the eponymous Local 58 fictional news channel. Without spoiling very much, Local 58 is the epitome of broadcast horror. From the outset, Local 58 lampoons that creepy scene from Poltergeist with the TV and cranks it up to 100. The short videos tell a continuing story using everything from the horror to be found in like old-timey cartoons to American propaganda, psychological programming, to the emergency alert system, to even Lovecraftian and eldritch horror, and it puts all those things in a blender to deliver one of the scariest things I've seen in years. The second video, called Contingency, is haunting and disturbing in a way that I can't quite describe. If you don't watch any of the other episodes, at least watch Contingency. The horror is entirely based on American propaganda and Cold War fears during the 1960s, and it will stick with you forever. Chris Strauss really needs the opportunity to have his own show and maybe direct his own film, because he's definitely delivering with these short episodes. I highly recommend you check this out right after you finish watching the show. My final recommendation before we cut to a short little commercial break is one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in my life. Do you know much about Poland or Polish horror? I don't think I've ever thought about Polish horror before this. Well, Smile Guide or Kreiner Gerzebub TV made me reconsider that. Describing this series is like describing the David Lynch movie Rabbits. It almost defies any explanation or any words I could use to describe it would be doing you a disservice, but I will try my best. Smile Guide is a fictional how-to guide show on the fictional channel of Mushroomland TV. The series follows Agatha, a teenage girl with motionless paper eyes over her real eyes, and her animated squirrel friend Maggie as they teach the viewers how to do things such as how to effectively apple. Have I been effectively appling this whole time? No, and I didn't know that until I watched this show. That's the premise in theory, but the show goes into full-blown, trippy, acid-filled surrealism. It's absolutely impossible to predict what's going to happen. The show also has this very grainy, old-time TV quality about it, similar, which, similar to Nosferatu, actually enhances the experience. The show isn't strictly a horror show, but when it gets disturbing and crazy, it has some of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. On the level of Samara from the ring crawling out of the TV levels of terrifying. You really have to watch it to understand what I am talking about. Words do not do the show justice. The most I could really give you is to just describe what happens in every episode. Give it a watch and then trick your friends into watching it without any context. Just like with Too Many Cooks or Haosu, just to see their reactions. We are going to cut to a short little commercial break, and when we get back, we will be joined by the members of the band Lucid Wasteland for an interview. Welcome back to Random Attempt at Comedy. For our final segment, we are lucky to be joined by the members of the Dayton-based band Lucid Wasteland. How are you guys doing today? Good, man. Pretty well, thank you. 
So how and when did Lucid Wasteland get started? And is there an interesting story behind the name? Um, we pretty much started, uh, it was me and Caleb, the bass player. I had this little like Line 6 amp that I had just sitting around and he had some drums. So yeah, we basically just started jamming in the basement and, you know, building up to, you know, kind of what it is now. As far as the, the name, I... I don't know if you're into lucid dreaming at all. A little bit, yeah. There's like methods to like go around. Like sometimes you'll like flip a light switch or something. It's called like a reality check. So if I hear a song in a dream and it's not being played right, like whether it be like something I've written or something somebody else has written, that's kind of like a reality check for me. And then I can go from there and start lucid dreaming. So which bands or musicians have influenced your group the most in your opinion? Um, I, I would like to say, I, I might be a little exclusive on this, but for me, I, I come from uh, like, Rob Zombie, Static X type of music, Seven Dust, Nine Inch Nails, and that's just you know stuff that to me was really heavy. Um, that's that's my main inspiration. Um, I'm really into the whole, like Seattle grunge movement. Um, I lived in Washington State for a few years, and I got a chance to listen to you know their radio stations out there. They're all independent, so but I mean they'd be playing like Alice in Chains, uh, Melvin, Soundgarden, like just all that stuff all day, and uh, you know it kind of got into me a little bit, and you know it's kind of kind of music i wanted to make initially but also you know just growing up listening to it got me there you know so what is your group's creative process for writing new songs is it primarily a group effort or are new songs like primarily written by one or two people in your band so lately it's been a group effort you know it usually starts with a riff you know you'll you'll go with the riff and then you'll write something to it or then you'll write a hook and you know you'll see you know what works and you know oh this would be cool here you know what this really needs is like maybe some silence here and then you know constantly just going over it and you know just, you know playing it over in your head and you know trying to come up with stuff that you think will sound cool like workshopping it right yeah yeah so what strengths do you think that each of your band's individual members bring to lucid wasteland yeah i think um I mean, everybody has their, their background, you know, things that they, you know, it's like what inspired you to want to pick up a guitar or, you know, drums in the first place. <clears throat> like Chris, I mean, he's mentioned before, you know, he's a metalhead and, you know, he kind of brings that, that extra crunch, um, especially for, you know, like the leads and stuff like that. Um, Caleb, our bass player, he's got a uh, punk background. So he, he listens to, you know, stuff like uh, No Effects, Bad Religion. He's into a whole lot of ska, so... You know, he kind of brings that, you know, on the you know lower end of the spectrum. And then uh, Brandon, Brandon's just good at drums. So. Yeah, he's he's phenomenal. But he's, you know, <laughs> he's he's pretty young, you know, at, as an adult. But he, his skill level is, yeah, is beyond his own years. And that's yeah, something, that's something I appreciate at least. <clears throat> and I've, I've learned that uh, there's, there's realistically there's two types of drummers. You know, you have drummers yeah. who are yeah, obviously very good and then drummers who are, who are pretty bad. And we're just trying to carry on. There's no middle ground for some strange reason, but uh, no, we we definitely lucked out with Brandon because he he's very good at his profession. Yeah, he just throws all kinds of like crazy stuff, and he's always in the pocket. Always. So you guys recently released an exciting new EP last month called Apocalyptia. What was your band's creative process for creating the EP's three songs, and which song was the most enjoyable to work on? So the, these songs have been written for a while. You know, it's kind of just been about you know getting the time to go into a studio, uh, seeing what studio we want to go into, you know, who we want to work with. Don't know if there's one song in particular that sort of fits even what the question was, but I, I know when we were in the studio, I just had a blast. You know that from my perspective like real when you get into that position for me at least there i couldn't say like oh this was you know the best or this was the favorite or anything like that. 
it's off just that fun music. creating music. It was just there. You know, and, and again, the music was already created, but when you have, well, for me, when I have that slight extra pressure, like, all right, now you're going to record it, so don't screw it up. That just kind mm-hmm. of, obviously, the difficulty increases, but then, uh, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me, but my enjoyment of it increases. So you so, perform really well yeah, under yeah, pressure. Yeah, so I don't, I don't <laughs> understand how that works out for me, but there was, a, there was uh, one song we had to hit several times, and that was my fault. Uh, but, you know, I feel like after that, you know, I got, it made me feel better on the inside, finally nailing that. So I think Hands Up was a lot of fun, too, because I think yeah. we, we did a lot of stuff like with our engineer. Um, yeah. Just saying, hey, can you do this? Here, yeah. Do that there. Right. Um, like even Untitled was fun, mm-hmm. you know, just going back and, mm-hmm. you know, adding those harmonics, you know, to the transition to the end. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. And that was my first recording session, you know, with a band. So seeing like how everybody like just watching the whole machine in action was really enjoyable. And then, you know, once you record everything, then everybody goes back to the engineers and then you watch them work their magic. So again, you know, just the process, the whole for process, you right. Just you know, really... and, and I'm, I've, I guess I've never been a part of that before. So it was, it was really cool. So how has your music changed between the release of your first EP, Silhouettes in the Dark to Apocalyptia? What lessons have your group like learned and in what ways have you tried to apply those lessons to your newest EP? When we did this, um, our first EP, Silhouettes in the Dark, uh, that was actually a, was a prize package for this battle of the bands that we played in Cincinnati. Uh, we got like, we got third place. So we got a little bit of cash and we got some studio time. And I, I think we just kind of went in there overanalyzing it a little bit, uh, you know, when you try things too hard, you know, it just... It doesn't come out as good. Yeah, or, you know, the way you want it, it doesn't feel natural to you, and it's always, you're always going to hear it because it's, you know, it's ingrained in that, you know, CD or, you know, whatever, so... You're kind of too stressed out, so you kind of self-sabotage yeah, yourself so in the creative I, process. So when I listen to it, like, personally, like, I can definitely hear, like, almost what I was thinking at the time, and, you know, it brings me right back to it, and it's like, well... I really wish I wasn't that stressed out over it. Just being a little bit more relaxed. I, I had a lot more fun like doing uh, Apocalyptia with these guys because I, I felt a lot. It felt a lot more fun. You know, I didn't feel like there was really anything he- you know hanging over my head. You know, the worst thing that could happen is you know we put out a EP that you know doesn't sound that great, but hey, it's out there. No, that's me. You know, I don't speak for anybody else, but no, it was it was. It was really a much more relaxed environment during the uh, most recent recording than than I was expecting. I mean, like Ron over at Rephrase, he helped out with that a lot. Yeah. You know, he just sort of reiterated consecutively or consistently, like, you know what, man, if you mess up, there's always just, just hit record again. You know, we keep it was a lot more laid back. Oh yeah, it's a much, it's very much a stress free thing. So it was cool. So, Lucid Wastelands performed at many local venues, such as Brightside, Bojangles Nightclub, and Thompson House. Which venue was your personal favorite to perform at, and why? It's a good question. Um, I think locally, uh, Brightside was probably my favorite place playing at. Um, I just really liked the venue. The people who worked there were really, really nice to us. And I think, uh, like, Cincinnati-ish, uh, Blue Note Harrison was a lot of fun mostly because we had a lot of people come to those because it was a battle of the bands so you know you kind of got to get up there and you know feel a little bit like a rock star you know people would come to see you and that's you know yeah it's an awesome feeling so how important is playing live to a music group's success in your guys's opinion yeah it's it's important man i mean it, it brings 
it brings people together, literally, you know, and hopefully it's a good time, you know, nobody, you know, gets into, you know, a bad situation like we had one time where this guy wanted to bring guns into the bar. Ooh. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a fun night. Go team. Yeah, you weren't there for that one. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm all right with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, or just, yeah, same one, like we had people like come up on the... Mm-hmm. on the stage and just start using the microphones for themselves like while we were trying to play it's all right <laughs> yeah thanks bud yeah so you gotta you gotta know who you're playing for too you know if you just show up at a random place and nobody knows who they are they're probably not going to respect you very much of course yeah and then also what i think is an important mention is there's a lot of people that like to play music um but there's a lot of people who aren't very good at playing music for people mm-hmm. so like in yeah a sort of what we do you, you're you're not just a musician when you're on stage you you are essentially 100% an entertainer. So if you're that person who just stands there and doesn't do anything, plays your instrument correctly or perfectly, and it's, it's not going to be a good show. So, Like the live performance is a yes, big part of it. It's important. not just, you know, right. it's a whole different like ball game than yeah. recording in a studio yeah. with nobody watching. Absolutely. Yeah. So what words would you guys use to describe the Ohio music scene right now? You don't really hear a lot of like... Um, people talking about the music scene in Ohio and with you guys being in it, like I would, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts. It's underground and it's awesome. Like nobody knows like, okay, obviously there's people who know how good like Dayton music is, but like not even lucid wasteland, like forget us. Like there is so much good music out there right now. And like, nobody's talking about it. It seems like, um, yeah. Uh, like, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I think that we should be able to, I don't know. It's it's difficult. The music scene, like, in, in the Dayton area. It's like, it's, there's, it's there's just very so much difficult. talent out there. there. Yeah, there's a lot of talent, but there's, there's, there's few and far places to really exercise it because, I mean, you don't want to go out and do a crap show. Yeah. You know? And then, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's hard here. You move out to, like, Columbus or Cincinnati, yeah. things get easier, you know, they're a bit more open. Like, yeah, bring your band, whatever. We'll all have fun. You'll get a few drinks. But it's but difficult in Dayton. Here, it's for some strange... I don't know. I can't wrap my head around it, but the bar is set really high, which is yeah. good. You know, that, yeah, that does help, out, good thing. help weave yeah. things out. But even for artists here who are very good at what they choose to do, it's still difficult for them, you know? So, of course. So, final question... What is your guys' proudest moment as a group and why? Obviously, like, we have, like, that that battle of the bands that I talked about earlier um, from last year in Cincinnati. That was great. I mean, being third place in anything always feels good. But I, I think it's honestly, like, not even when we're playing the music. It's just the fact, you know, that we're all hanging out and we all want to be around each other and, you know, talk to each other and, like, have a good time, like, being around each other. Like, for me, that's my proudest moment. The atmosphere is really nice. Yes. Yeah. Just outside the music. I mean, obviously, all the four of us together, we work pretty well. Yeah. You know, no complaints there. But then the fact that we could all hang out for a couple hours on end, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, nobody's like in a rush to do anything. There's no like, uh, it's like one arm's distance from anybody. It's it's difficult to find that sort of camaraderie. You guys are all good friends and right. just enjoyable to work. Right. And but you'd be surprised. There's a lot of groups out there that aren't like that. Yeah. You know, they they work together and they have a totally like great work relationship but then you know they punch out they're, they're going home you like know, if you know. look at like the who i know roger daltrey always mm. had like big like conflicts with yeah. Pete townsend and yeah keep mood and stuff and so we don't have those and if something comes up someone's like hey and then oddly enough it takes about two minutes to squash it, it and i don't yeah. think it's even happened 
but I just know that's like probably going to happen down right. the road. I mean, yeah. It probably may happen someday. I can't say it won't, but I know that it'll be handled quickly. You know? Yeah. It's going to be scorched earth. Yeah, scorched earth. <laughs> start punching people in the face. Woo! <laughs> hey, that's how you do it. Yeah, man. That solves problems. <laughs> so, Lucid Wasteland is about to perform for us one of their songs live. What is the title of the song, and what pers- personal significance does it hold to you guys? So, Evan Quake, uh, I'm a big fan of Skyrim and Fallout games. Uh, that's Respect there. Pretty Word. much all Word. I do in my free time. Um, I kind of base that song around kind of Skyrim, but not really. Uh, you know, it's means a lot of different things. You know, basically, whoever you are, whatever you're going through, I mean, I'm sure you can find a way for this to relate to your life somehow, but... Structured from chaos, they bloom. 
show folks a special thanks to the members of lucid wasteland for being on the show and performing for us do you guys want to make any shout outs before we end the show yeah i want to shout out our bass player get well soon dude we're here with you everybody we're with you man you're gonna get through this and um and brandon and brandon yeah you're awesome thing, brother thank you guys so much for coming on the show next week a random attempt at comedy is joined by famous voice actress jesse flower from the hit show avatar see you next wednesday